The scripture reading is from the Gospel according to John, chapters, chapter 16, verses 7 through 15. Listen now to the word of the Lord. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. This is the word of the Lord. That again. Good morning. All right. Uh, welcome. Uh, for those of you who are uh, new, uh, we are going through a series of sermons on the New City Catechism, and we are now on question number 37. Uh, and so uh, at the beginning of service, we'd like to just review, and so we'll review with question 36. Uh, let's recite this together. What do we believe about the Holy Spirit? And how does the Holy Spirit help us? All right, so that's, uh, that's the word for today. Okay, uh, let's pray together. God, um, thank you for this day that you have made. And as we now consider the ways that you help us through your Holy Spirit, help us to understand uh, what that means and to be empowered to receive that help and live according to your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so last week uh, we talked about the Holy Spirit, the person of the Holy Spirit, who is co-eternal with the Father and the Son, and whom Jesus called another helper, or the paraclete. And so today we want to consider the Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit helps us or as the Catechism teaches, the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin, enables us to pray, and understand God's Word. And so in the coming weeks, uh, I want to talk about the prayer part of it and the Word part of it, because it's a lot here. And so today, I just want to focus on that first part, which is uh, the Spirit's work of convicting us of our sin. Now, as I mentioned last week, chapters 13 through 17 in the Gospel of John is what we call the farewell address because Jesus is now giving his final instructions to his disciples as he prepares for the cross. And so our reading is a continuation from Jesus' teaching from last time regarding the Holy Spirit uh, or the paraclete, and which I said last time, who is the encourager or the comforter, the one who gives us strength the advocate who defends us, who stands for us, 
and the true friend, one who will be our constant companion. Now, keep in mind that uh, what Jesus says here is not a lecture about the Holy Spirit, nor about the Trinity. He's, he's not offering a kind of a comprehensive or a systematic theology of the Holy Spirit, but rather his focus here is to comfort his disciples because he knows they're, they're discouraged, they're, they're sad that Jesus is about to go to the cross and that he's going to go away. And so that's what we want to keep in mind because there's so many aspects of the Holy Spirit. I mean, we could spend, you know, literally months talking about the Spirit. We could talk about the, the fruit of the Spirit, walking in the Spirit, being led by the Spirit, the indwelling and the filling of the Spirit. I mean, on and on and on. And so keep in mind that this is a word that Jesus is giving to, to strengthen his disciples as he is about to go to the cross. He knows what they're going to face. He knows the discouragement and the sorrow that awaits them. And he wants them to know you're going to have help. I'm not going to abandon you. You will not be like orphans. I'm going to send you another helper, the paraclete. He will encourage you. He will advocate for you against all charges. And he will be your constant companion. And Jesus says, a part of that advantage, he says, is that unless I go away, the Spirit will not come. And the way that the Spirit will benefit the disciples, he says, is that the Spirit will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. The Spirit will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. That is the help that the disciples are going to get. And so I want to be very careful that we do not twist what Jesus says about the Holy Spirit Because people often do this, right? People often think about the aid of the Holy Spirit as a kind of personal help to uh, bless their lives. Now, certainly the Spirit helps us, blesses us, and so on. But, you know, people often think of, well, the Holy Spirit will come, and the Holy Spirit will help me achieve success in life, will help me get A's in school, help me get a promotion at work. The Spirit is going to, you know, give me wealth and health and will, you know, Spirit will help me accomplish great things for God, even, right? No, not really. That, that's not what Jesus says. The Spirit will convict the world regarding sin, righteousness, and judgment. Now, that is not to say the Spirit does not help us uh, in temptation and in, in many other ways. But here, again, I want to focus on the fact that the Spirit's work, the Spirit's work, Jesus says, this is how the Spirit is going to help you. The Spirit is going to convict the world regarding sin, righteousness, and judgment. A little word study on this word, convict. So the word convict in English means to, um, to prove something or someone wrong, right? To declare guilty. If you convict someone, you know, they, they've been found guilty. The, the noun of that, you know, convict, is someone who's been found, who's been convicted of a crime, The Greek dictionary of this word that gets translated as convict says also that it is, uh, states, someone who has done something wrong with the implication that there is adequate proof for such wrongdoing. And that's how we ordinarily understand the word to convict. However, the word convict here can also be translated not as convict, but also as convince, to expose, to bring to light. 
So, for example, John 3.20, a little bit earlier, Jesus says, For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed, convicted. It's the same word here. So this word that is translated as convict, I don't want you to think only of convict to declare someone guilty. I want you to think also of this idea of convince. That the Spirit's work is both to convict, to declare guilty, the world, regarding sin, righteousness, and judgment, but also to convince the world regarding sin, righteousness, and judgment. You with, you with me? Both ideas. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. will both convict and convince the world that what the world thinks is wrong, they're wrong about that. Their ideas about sin is wrong. What the world thinks is right or righteous isn't right. And what the world thinks is the ultimate reality, judgment, is also an illusion. So the world is wrong about what it thinks is wrong. It isn't right about what it thinks is right. And it's also um, wrong about what it thinks is the ultimate reality. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. And so the Spirit will convict or convince the world of these three fundamental truths. And Jesus said a little earlier that the world cannot accept the Spirit because it does not see the Spirit nor knows the Spirit. But that is the work of the Spirit, to convince and convict the world because the world is convinced that it has this ideal about sin, righteousness, and judgment. And Jesus says, it's, it's wrong in its understanding of these ideas. All right. First, the world is wrong about sin and its understanding of what sin is. Uh, Czesław Milos, a, a Polish uh, Nobel Prize winning writer, poet, has a, a poem entitled A Poem for the End of the Century, and it begins like this. When everything was fine and the notion of sin had vanished, and the earth was ready in universal peace to consume and rejoice without creeds and utopias. And then the poet goes on to say, you know, that's what the world is thinking, but I'm having all these doubts and questions about this reality, when everything was fine. To him, not everything. It doesn't seem like everything is fine. The notion of sin had vanished. Well, to him, it hasn't. But this is where... This is what the world wants to believe. The notion of sin has vanished and everything is fine. There is a sort of secular dream, an illusion of universal peace built on unlimited consumption and without any exclusive creeds of belief systems. Sin is an outdated idea replaced now by social, psychological, therapeutic, criminal, sociological categories. It has no place today in our, you know, sensibilities. No, nobody talks about sin. I mean, when's the last time you talked with a non-Christian person about sin? When, when's the last time that topic came up? When's the last time the topic of sin came up with, with your Christian friends? I mean, even in the church, this ideal of sin uh, has been kind of pushed to the side. At best, when sin does get mentioned, it's usually thought of uh, in terms of ethics 
or as a kind of a, a morality. Sometimes, you know, or, or people think of sin as like, um, they know something bad, but, you know, it's fun. It's rebellious. It's what you do in Las Vegas. That's, you know, it's, it's, maybe you shouldn't, but, you know, it can be kind of a, a good thing somehow. Um, so we use different languages to talk about sin, but the world does still recognize and agree that it's, there is something that is wrong, right? That if you lie, that if you cheat, that if you steal, you know, if, if you're mean to your little brother, that that is wrong. They might not call that sin, but that there is the sense of that that is not right. And it is. And it is. But Jesus says that's not what sin is about. That's not what sin is about. And this is the work of the Holy Spirit now. He says the world is wrong about sin because, Jesus says, sin is to not believe in him. That is sin. In other words, you know, the world, and most of the time we think of the opposite of sin as being virtue, right? Doing good. That if you're not going to sin, then you're going to do these good things. But Jesus says, no. The opposite of sin is not good deeds or virtue. The opposite of sin is faith in him. Right? That's a radical, radical claim. Sin is unbelief or not trusting in Jesus. That is the fundamental sin. And that's what Jesus says here, and that is the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, in Christian thinking, that's what sin is. Sin is not primarily a moral, a moral issue. It is a theological issue. The first sin in the story of Adam and Eve and first human beings, in the Garden of Eden... It wasn't that they, you know, fought with each other or, like, stole something from, you know, that, that was not the failure. The original sin of humanity was a failure to trust God's word. It was a failure to not believe God and in God's goodness and in God's word. That's sin. That's the fundamental sin. Before there was murder, there was this distrust of God's word, and that is sin. And so to not believe God and God's word is to reject God. And if Jesus is who he says he is, to reject Jesus then is to reject God. And that's why Jesus says, sin is to not believe in me. Because I have come from the Father, and the Father and I are one. So when the Bible talks about sin and this idea of missing the mark... It means that our lives are fundamentally misaligned with God's perfect will. And and we don't have to see very far to see that this is true in our world today. It's not difficult to convince the world that there is something fundamentally amiss. There is no shortage of evil acts making the news, right? Both horrific acts, like in the recent uh, shooting uh, uh, with the newspaper, Headquarters, um, but but banal things like the, these petty thefts uh, that you hear about, and it's it's easy to point out sort of the the evil and what's wrong with the world. But here Jesus is now pointing to what is behind all of that. There is something more fundamental behind hunger and terrorism, something behind corporate greed and racism, something behind school shootings. And, and hopeless cynicism, there is something that underlies all of these things that is wrong with the world. And it stems from the fact that the world has fallen away 
from God's word and trusting God's word. Light has come into the world, but people chose darkness over the light. And so what faith does, what trust in Jesus does, it helps to reorient our lives toward God. Faith in Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life gives you know, a, a new orientation in life so that sin is no longer you know, just merely a set of you know, uh, outward acts that we commit, but it fundamentally reorients us to a trust in Jesus and in his word and therefore in God's word. Because again, if Jesus says who he says he is, then to refuse to believe in him, it, it, it would be the worst of wrongs and the worst of sins. Because he is the son of God, the one who makes God visible for us. To reject him is to reject God. And that's the root sin of the world. That's what Jesus says. Behind all the things that are going on, this is the fundamental truth, the fundamental idea about why it's so important for us to understand what sin really is. And so the Holy Spirit will both convince the world that it is wrong about its ideas of sin and will convict the world of this particular sin because it does not believe in Jesus as the Son of God. Second, righteousness. So the world is also not right about righteousness. Again, just like sin, people think of righteousness as right acts in terms of good deeds and so on. Many sincere people then, as well as today, many sincere religious people think righteousness primarily in, primarily in terms of doing what you're supposed to do, obeying God's word, doing the Ten Commandments, you know, being kind to your neighbors, stuff like that. Again, all good things, and you know, we, we want to encourage that behavior. But that's not what righteousness is. People you know, will push that to think, well, you know, if there is a God, then um, you know, I've been a pretty good person, I've done enough good deeds, and so that ought to you know, balance out and against some of the bad things I've done, and then God owes me, you know, to, to go to heaven or, or something like that. But that's this prevailing notion of what righteousness is, that we, we want to be good people, we want to do the right things, and, and hopefully God will, you know, look favorably upon enough of the good that I do. Um, but that is not, again, um, what righteousness is. Jesus says that the Holy Spirit will convince the world, convict the world, that what it thinks about righteousness is wrong because, he says, he is going to the Father and they will no longer see him. So on one level, Jesus here is talking about the actions that the world will take against him thinking it is doing the right thing. The Jewish leaders are going to have him crucified because they think Jesus is blaspheming, that he is unrighteous because he claimed to be the Son of God. The Romans are going to crucify him because, you know, he's speaking words of treason and he's denying the emperor and empire as God. And so, so they're going to get rid of him because they think they're doing the right thing, you know, to, to maintain peace. People around Jesus, they, they thought he was a sinner because of the things that he said. They thought they were all doing the right things. They even thought they were obeying God and putting Jesus to death. But they were wrong. And Jesus says, they're wrong, and they know that they're wrong, and the proof that they're wrong is that he's going back to the Father. Even though they kill him, he's going back to the Father. That's the proof that they're wrong. On another level, the Holy Spirit will convict and convince the world that all the works of what we think of as righteousness, these good things, are worthless. 
Jesus says that I'm going back to the Father is really a kind of shorthand to say that I have come from the Father and I'm returning to the Father after I have completed his mission. I have fulfilled my mission to the fullest. I have come to die in obedience on the cross to make atonement for the sins of the world, to bring forgiveness and eternal life. Righteousness is not what we do. Righteousness is God sending his son to die on the cross for us. That is righteousness. And the proof of that is Jesus going back to the Father. All our righteousness are but dirty rags in the sight of God. The Holy Spirit will reveal this righteousness to the world. It's not about morality. It's not about being good. It's about theology. The righteousness of God demonstrated on the cross because what the world saw as defeat on the cross, we know, was the righteous work of God that delivered death and defeat into victory in life. That is righteousness. Not what we do, but what God has done for us. That is the righteousness that Jesus is talking about here. Um, You know, the... The great, great preacher, uh, Charles Spurgeon, uh, had this really uh, keen insight, I thought. He said that, you know, usually when we talk about sin and being convicted of sin, the next thing that comes up is um, sentencing, right? Judgment. We go from sin and conviction to uh, judgment, and that's how it normally works. But here, you notice that between sin and judgment is the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. There is this kind of intervention that takes place before judgment is handed down. The Spirit convicts us, convinces us, the world, of sin. He must. We must know that we are guilty. We must know that there is a wrong that is real. But at the same time, the Spirit leads us to hope in Jesus Christ, the righteousness of God that is given to us before the judgment. Right? It's like God's righteousness is sandwiched, in, you know, it's like the bacon, lettuce, and tomato between the two breads of sin and judgment. The sandwich is me, that's not Spurgeon. Uh, I don't want to embarrass Spurgeon, right? But between sin and judgment, you have this, the, the righteousness of God. That's the good news. That's the good news. And you know, if you really think about it, that is, that is just such incredible news. But we, we've heard it so often, most of us. I've been forgiven of my sins. I have eternal life. Eh. Right? But I mean, that is like, it's so good. It's so good. And yet we, we, we kind of just forget about that. Um, I was reminded of uh, Martin Luther's uh, last speech, the last sermon he gave um, in 1546, uh, just a few days before he died. The last sermon that he preached, uh, he talked about how there was a time when, you know, if you knew that the word of God was going to be here, like people would run to that place, right? But because the gospel had been preached, people like, they're like, eh, it's the gospel. And, And people would rather seek out things that were more interesting. They wanted to go to a place where, you know, here's, here's a splinter from the cross of Jesus. You know, here's a, here's a couple of threads from Joseph's pants. You know, 
here's a, here's a button from, you know, Mary's blouse. Like, that's what people wanted, like, something more exciting than, than this good news of eternal life. And, and he, and he kind of like, he was kind of sad by that, saddened by that. And that was right after the period of, of you know, the, the Reformation and this recovery of this idea. And for us, we've been hearing, you know, for most of our lives, many of us. And so we forget just how valuable it is. We get bored with it, and we seek out more interesting things. You know, maybe we're not looking for the splinter of the cross, but, you know, we, we want more, like, you know, more excitement, like more spiritual things, you know, the speaking in tongues, maybe, or you want more, like, powerful, you know, a worship experience, uh, th- things like that, when the righteousness of God is not enough somehow. But that's what the Holy Spirit will do. It will convict us and convince us about the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. Thirdly, the world is wrong about judgment, about ultimate reality. The world is wrong because the ruler of the world is judged, has been judged. Jesus' victory over sin and death and his resurrection and his ascension means that the ruler of this world, Satan and the powers that oppose God, have been defeated already, right? I think the world thinks still like, okay, you know, we're, we're sort of headed into this future and we don't know how it's going to turn out. Maybe good will win, maybe evil will win, right? It's, it's kind of like Star Wars, right? You got the, the Jedi on the one side and you got the, the dark side of the force on the other side. Like, who's going to win? Uh, well, we're not sure, right? Maybe people think like, I'm not sure about my life or other people's life. Like, maybe you'll go to heaven, maybe you'll go to hell. Like, uh, what... No, no, it's done. It's been judged. Who gets the final say? It's already been said. The world has not believed God's final redeeming word, Jesus Christ. But we have known this final word. John the baptizer said earlier in the gospel about Jesus, this is the judgment. This is the judgment. Not that you did wrong things or or whatever. This is the judgment. That they did not believe in the one whom God sent. That that is the basis of the judgment. That's it. That's it. It has nothing to do with how good of a life you've lived. It's whether or not you have believed in the one whom God has sent to take care of your sins, to declare you righteous on the cross because of what he has done, not because of what we're going to do or fail to do. The Spirit will convict and convince the world that it is wrong about sin, righteousness, and judgment. And I think a simple, simpler way you know, of saying that, um, I'm a little hesitant to say I'm going to simplify Jesus' words and make it better, but what Jesus is saying here is that the Holy Spirit is going to tell you about himself. That's it. The world is wrong in what it thinks about Jesus. That's what all this is getting at. The Holy Spirit will say that you are wrong about who you think Jesus is. And now, here's the thing. The Holy Spirit is going to do this, not in some magical way, but the Spirit will do this, will accomplish this, through the ordinary witness and testimony of the church, of you. Look what he says. We heard uh, last, last time, we heard, the world cannot receive the Holy Spirit because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him 
For he dwells with you and will be with you. The Spirit is in us. And listen again. Jesus says, I will send the Holy Spirit to you all, and when he comes to you all, the church, he will convince and convict the world. You see that? The Spirit isn't going isn't gonna to go to, you know, uh, Timbuktu or some place, you know, appear and just, you know, with a light show and, like, convince the world. That's not the way it works. The Spirit comes to the church, to the community of faith, and works through us to convict and convince the world. The Spirit will lead us into the truth, and that truth is to glorify God. You know, I don't know if you uh, have really thought about it. You know, like for me, I think for, for many uh, years, especially when I was younger, I thought of the Spirit's presence in my life and in the, in the life of the church would be more um, like dramatic, or, right? Like if someone has the Holy Spirit, like they're, they're going to like heal people and like speak in tongues and like, you know, speak prophetic words and, you know, things like that, Right? That if someone is really filled with the Spirit, they're going to be like dancing and jumping when they're praising God. Like, that's what it is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And yes, that's, that is one part of it. I'm not denying that. But what I think Jesus is getting at here is that when, this, when we are filled with the Spirit, we will glorify Jesus. We're going to talk about Jesus. That's what it is to be filled with the Spirit. To say that Jesus is the righteousness of God. You know, the Holy Spirit is sometimes called a shy member of the Trinity because the Holy Spirit doesn't draw attention to himself. He doesn't say, look at me, look at the pot, right? The Holy Spirit shines a spotlight on Jesus and glorifies Jesus just as Jesus glorified God the Father. And so when the church glorifies Jesus, when we, when we proclaim the name of Jesus, when we talk about there is salvation in no other name than Jesus, that's when we are filled with the Spirit. That's when the Spirit is working in us and through us. When Jesus' name is lifted high, that is the work of the Spirit. And that's what this conviction and convincing about sin, righteousness, and judgment is all about. And, you know, um, I think you know, th- this is such a radical and fundamental shift that Jesus makes here that it's, it's, he completely changes the way people thought about what it means to be to have the, the presence of God. Um, what I mean is this: in the Old Testament, God is present in the lives and the people of Israel. Right? God is there. That that's that was their um, radical claim, and that was the most important marker of what it meant to be Jewish. It wasn't the fact that they were circumcised. It wasn't the fact that they had these, you know, dietary laws. It wasn't even the fact that they kept the Sabbath. Now, those are all important markers of the Jewish faith. But the most important marker was the fact that they had the presence of God in their midst. At first, it was in the tabernacle that they built in the time of Moses, where in the tabernacle, they said, you know, God is right here. God is right here. I mean, we still see this, remnants of this, you know, when you go to Jerusalem by the, by the Wailing Wall, right, they said, this is where God is. This is as close 
physically as you're going to get to God on, on the earth. And that's what they claim. In the tabernacle, in the Ark of the Covenant, this is where God is. And then later, uh, in the Promised Land, they built a temple and the Holy of Holies, and they said, this is where God is. God dwells here. That's who we are. That's what made them special. God was with his people, you know, in, in an almost literal sort of way. Like, God is here in the Holy of Holies. And so, so you can imagine how devastated the people were when they were defeated by their enemies and their temple was destroyed. To have their temple destroyed by the Babylonians and to be taken off into exile, I mean, that, it just completely destroyed their sense of identity and meaning. To have the temple destroyed. How, you know, God is no longer with us. I mean, that's just a, that just shakes you down to your very, very core. And so when they returned from exile, I mean, what, what an incredible joy that was to have the temple restored and to say, God is with us once again in this temple. So fast forward another 400 years and Jesus comes along and he says, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. Someone greater than the temple is here. Right? I mean, that's, that's, you can't say stuff like that. God is present in the temple, and Jesus is making himself someone greater than the temple is here. And so look what he does here now. He comes, and he says, now, God is not in the temple He's not in the temple. God, in the Holy Spirit now, is in you. Is in the church. Not, not the building, the church, okay? But the people of God, the church. God is relocated from the temple, to the tabernacle, to the people of God. That's a complete shift from the way people understood how God is present in his people. That's Jesus' radical claim. All the hopes of the prophets now fulfilled in him. The Spirit of God dwelling with his people. The one who has been called alongside the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, is with us. That's, that's what it means for us. That's how, that's how the outsiders saw the early church in the book of Acts. They were awed by their lives and they said, surely... God is in your midst. God must be present because of the way you're living your life. That is how God is present in the world today. You with me here? God is with us in the way that God was in the temple. In us collectively, in the church. That's why 1 Corinthians 3.9, for example, says, uh, we are God's building." Ephesians 2.22, you are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 3.16, do you not know that you all are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you all together? We are the temple of the Spirit of God. Here now, God dwells with us in the Holy Spirit and is recreating in us a holy people who can reproduce God's character and life for the world to bring God glory, to bring his kingdom 
to bear witness to the world regarding sin, righteousness, and judgment. And we do this because the Spirit lives in us. That is our task, to convince and convict the world about Jesus. That's it. That's it. And we know that the Spirit is present in us when we glorify Jesus. That's our job. I hope you can let that sink in a little bit. The Spirit is with us. Right? I don't, I don't know if that's... I mean, that, that's such a... Just as God was present in the Holy of Holies, in the, the inner sanctum of the temple, right? and, and people were even afraid to get near there because it was such a holy place. As God was present then, so God now is present in us. And that's why we live in a particular way. That's why we, we, you know, that's why we have to to fight injustice. That's why we have to to clean up the sin in our lives. Because the Spirit of God is in us. And that calls for just a different way of living. We can't do otherwise. The Spirit of God is in us, shaping us. He walks with us. He is the Lord, the giver of life, and the one who will never abandon us, even to the end of the age. Let's pray together. God, we know that um, it's not something that we do for ourselves um, or something that we can will ourselves to try harder or anything like that. Uh, We know that anything that we do that glorifies you Anything that we do in proclaiming the name of Jesus is because you live in us. It's you living in us, guiding us, leading us into the truth, empowering us, walking with us, giving us life. We know that it is you who makes this possible. And so God, help us to to know that in the core of our being to know the truth about who you are and to live bearing faithful witness to declare to the world, to convict and convince the world that you are the Christ, Son of the living God, and that it is in you and you alone we have eternal life. We ask all this in Jesus' name.